0: I don't know if Arizona is two-party consent, so it might be, but you're all consenting by being here, so I'm recording you, but you're not saying anything, only I am. Okay, so I'm going to pray before we get started. Um, Father, we just thank you that we can gather together and uh, talk about your word, talk about why your word is a treasure to um, our lives and um, to one another, that we... We'll learn about passing on your word, we'll learn about lament, um, and today I'll be talking on uh, treasuring your word. I just pray for all the women in here that you will prepare our hearts um, to receive what I have been studying um, with 2 Timothy three fourteen through 17, and that we will be receptive and um, eagerly listen to your word. And... Um, learn to love your word. And so, um, we just rejoice that you've made this all happen. Uh, for me, this has been a very long, uh, couple of months and I've had a lot going on. And so I'm just very thankful that this all worked out. And, um, I trust that what I've prepared is what you've ordained for the women here to receive. And so I pray that it blesses them and, um, that you will be glorified, and that uh, we will all trust in your gospel. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so I am really excited for the opportunity to teach on uh, treasuring God's word. This is a subject that I'm personally really passionate about, and I hope that everyone leaves here feeling um, confident that God's word is accurate, true, and capable to make us all complete, and equipped for every good work. So throughout this weekend retreat, I hope that we all can find rest as we fellowship with one another, and I hope that we all leave uh, feeling blessed by God's word. God's word is a treasure that surpasses all other worldly treasures. It is more profitable than gold um, because it makes us wise unto salvation in Jesus Christ. So this specific message is going to be a little bit more academic than the other two messages because we will be talking about the history of the Bible. But my prayer is that we will all come to appreciate the Bibles on our laps a little bit more and we will have a greater urgency to pass on this treasure to the next generation. So starting out, let's all open up our Bibles to 2 Timothy 3, 14 through 17. And does anybody need a Bible as well? Where are they exactly, Laura?
1: Anyone else? Any Bibles?
0: There's no shame in opening your phone either. I will not think that you're texting, I promise. <laughs> okay, so the text says, again, it's 2 Timothy three fourteen through 17. for correction and for training in righteousness that the man of god may be complete equipped for every good work so we're going to be covering three major points they're up here if you want to follow along they're going to stay up there the whole time you'll see below the verses that we're covering as i go through So the first point that we're working on is, what is scripture? The second point is, how is God's word treasure? And lastly, we will be looking on, how do we pass on this treasure? So starting off with our first point, what is scripture? If you'll read along with me in verses 14 through 15, again, it says, But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it. And how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. So in this letter, Paul is writing to Timothy. He is urging Timothy to continue in what he's learned and believed from his childhood, Paul reminds Timothy that he has been acquainted with the sacred scriptures. In this context, Paul is referring to the Old Testament as the New Testament letters had not yet been compiled. And we see here that the Old Testament is able to make Timothy wise unto salvation in Christ Jesus. So it's important that we first establish the parameters of scripture, more simply what is God's word. So we have something called the Christian canon. Canon is a rule that provides direction, a standard against which to measure. The Christian canon is a list of authoritative books that properly belong in the Bible. This includes the 39 books of the Old Testament and the 27 books in the New Testament that Christians believe God inspired and preserved as his word for his people. In Exodus 24, 3 through 4 and verse 7, we see God command Moses to write down the revelation and the covenant to his people Israel. We find this written account of Moses from Genesis through Deuteronomy, which is also known as the Torah or the law of God. In Exodus 25, 26, we see God command that his word be preserved in the ark of the covenant. And since God's word was preserved, no ruler or leader of Israel would have any excuse for not knowing or understanding the requirements of God. After Moses, the major and minor prophets and the author of the authors of the Old Testament wisdom literature were also inspired by God, and the people of Israel came to recognize that these writings were also a part of the canon of Scripture. We know that Jews alive during the time of Jesus believed that the canon extended to the 39 books that we have today because Jesus himself demonstrated in Luke 24, 44 through 47, uh, that he came so that the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms would all be fulfilled. At the time of Jesus, referring to all, um, all the wisdom literature as the Psalms was common, so we know that all 39 books were affirmed by Jesus and believed to be inspired by God. You may be thinking after hearing this, so what? And how do I know if the Bible is even accurate at all? Well, the New Testament quotes the Old Testament approximately 300 times. And we just saw that Jesus himself affirms the 39 books of the Old Testament as God's word. The Old Testament has always been accepted as God's word by the people of God. And again, we see in 2 Timothy 3.15 that Paul also affirmed the sacred writings um, to Timothy. But can we prove that the New Testament is accurate about the claims it makes? And how do we know if the New Testament is God's word, just like the Old Testament? We know that the New Testament has more preserved manuscripts than any other text from antiquity. There are over 5,700 fragments and complete copies of the New Testament in Greek. And there is a scoring system that is used by scholars to determine the accuracy of a book of antiquity. And the Bible has a score of 99.99%, which is insane. 99.99%. And the only other book to even come close is Homer's Iliad, which is a famous book and it has a a rating of 95%. Uh, You may also be familiar with Plato and Socrates, and they do not even come close to this level of accuracy when we compare the manuscripts that we have today. People are, however, very quick to dismiss the Bible as an inaccurate book written by men with precious truths removed or even containing errors that make it more like a historical game of telephone rather than an accurate summary of events that occurred 2,000 years ago. We must remember, though, that God's word is breathed out by him, and if they are the very words of God, he is able to protect them throughout all of history. Not only that, but the historical evidence is in favor of the New Testament. So if you consider yourself an intellectual and you affirm that Plato's, Plato or Socrates or even Homer's Iliad are accurate documents, then you must also affirm that the Bible is accurate that we have today. And not only accurate, but the most accurate book out of all books of antiquity. To reject the Bible is to reject all books of antiquity as false. And if you are unwilling to do that, you must embrace the historical reliability of the New Testament. So now that we've established that the New Testament is accurate, how do we know that the New Testament is God's word? The test that determined how we got the 66 books in the Bible that we have today, which would be all the Old Testament and the New, included that it had to be written by a recognized prophet, or apostle, this would include Isaiah of the Old Testament and Paul of the New, or one closely associated with a prophet or apostle. This would include Timothy or Luke. It had to be truthful. Deuteronomy 18, 20 through 22 sets the guidelines for that. It had to be faithful to previously accepted canonical, canonical writings. It had to be confirmed by Christ a prophet, or an apostle. And lastly, it had to be used and recognized by the entire church. Just a reminder, the Old Testament has always been accepted as God's word by the people of God, and the New Testament was completely compiled and completely accepted in A.D. 397. Keep in mind that it took many years uh, for the New Testament letters to be compiled, But the New Testament has always been used since the birth of the early church, which would be the time of Jesus. Um, Christian, because the Old Testament was still the church. But Um, it is also important to note that the Bible is self-authenticating. Self-authenticating means any document that can be admitted into evidence at a trial without proof being submitted To support the claim that the document is what it appears to be basically that means that the document is true and you do not need external means to prove that it is true it confirms its truthfulness without showing additional external proof an example from life that we would all be familiar with would be a newspaper article A newspaper article can be submitted into evidence at a trial um, because a newspaper is self-authenticating and does not need to be confirmed outside of itself. You know it is true because it says across the top, New York Times, and so you can trust that the article is true, reliable, and accurate because you know where it is from. Um, An example from the Bible would be looking to the Old Testament to define who the Messiah is and will be. Uh, Just as a reminder again, the Old Testament has always been affirmed as being the revelation of God to his people, Israel. Uh, Isaiah 53, the text that we will be briefly looking at, if you want to flip there while I'm talking, uh, was given to the people of God approximately 700 years before the birth of Jesus Christ. And the oldest scroll of Isaiah in existence was a part of the discovery of the Dead Sea Scrolls. This scroll, the scroll that's a full manuscript of Isaiah, um, predates the birth of Jesus by approximately 200 years. So we know that this prophecy was written long before the birth of Jesus Christ, and therefore we can trust the criteria for the Messiah was not determined after the death of Jesus. So just very quickly, if you're not already there, turn to Isaiah chapter 52 and 53, just to briefly look at how God's word is self-authenticating. I don't want us to get distracted by this text because it's not our focus, um, but it is just an example to show you how the Old Testament confirms the New Testament's authority. Just for context, Isaiah 52 and 53 contain the prophecy of the coming Messiah. They are not the only places, but they are probably the most well-known. Um, so looking first at Isaiah 52, or 13, 52, 13, it says that the Messiah will be high and lifted up. This is fulfilled in Jesus Christ because he was high and lifted up on the, ca- the cross at Calvary. Isaiah 53, 4 through 7 And verse nine says, surely he has bore our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted, but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have churned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted. Yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent. So he opened not his mouth. And then verse 9. And they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. So these verses, again, are all fulfilled in Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ had to die on the cross to atone for our sins. He carried our griefs and our sorrows, and he was afflicted for us. He was pierced literally in the hands, his feet, and his side, just like the text says he would be. Uh, Jesus did not speak as he was marched to Calvary's Hill, and he was uh, buried in the tomb of a wealthy man named Joseph of Arimathea. This example is not exhaustive, and I would really encourage anyone who's not familiar with the text, and just to do it anyway, on Isaiah 52 and 53, for a better and deeper appreciation of how the Bible is self-authenticating and confirms itself. I would also encourage everyone to read John chapter 19, 20, and 21. Again, that's John 19, 20, and 21, because these chapters contain additional examples of how the Bible is self-authenticating. When you read these chapters, you will see that the Old Testament is quoted to confirm that Jesus is fulfilling prophecy. Just to bring more clarity... A self-authenticating canon is not just a canon that claims to have authority or simply bears internal evidence of authority, but one that guides and determines how that authority is to be established. Basically, one cannot authenticate the Bible without appealing to the Bible. Being God's word, the Bible is not just true, but it is the standard for truth. It must be our ultimate authority. We cannot account for scripture as being our supreme authority without using scripture. Just like there is no authority above God, God is the only one who can establish his authority. If anything were able to establish God's authority, that thing would be above God. And since we know God is the ultimate authority, he is self-authenticating. He proves who he is based off who he is. Um, The same is true for scripture. There is no greater written authority for how we should live and who God is. Nothing can establish uh, the Bible's authority apart from the Bible, which comes from God. Jesus Christ, who is God in the flesh, has told us that the Bible comes from the highest authority, God himself. This is why looking at the Old Testament first and then comparing it to the New Testament is a very good test test, because the two testaments are cohesive and they fit together. The Bible was written over 40 different authors that spans over 1,500 years, written in three different languages on three different continents, and yet the Bible reads like one book. It tells one story from start to finish about Jesus Christ coming to redeem his people. If you don't believe me, open Genesis 3.15 and you will see the first promise of that. The Bible is true and you can confirm its truthfulness by looking throughout the pages of scripture and using scripture to authenticate itself. So since we have established that the Bible is a historically accurate book, that is self-authenticating, and the only authority by which we are to live, what does God's word have to say about itself? Looking back to the text, we are again working with 2 Timothy 3, 14 through 17. It tells us that God's word is profitable, good for teaching, reproof, correction, and training in righteousness. And scripture makes the Christian complete and equipped for every good work. This brings us to our second point. How is God's word treasure? The letter of 2 Timothy was written by Paul to Timothy. Sinclair Ferguson says of this book, uh, quote, it was written to Timothy, but not exclusively for Timothy, a distinction that is true for all the New Testament letters, not written for you, but, or not written to you, but written for you, unquote. And because God's word is breathed out and profitable, we know that we can gain wisdom from this text and that it still applies to us today. If this text was a treasure for Timothy, then it is also a treasure for us. First, we need to define some words. Uh, We need to define the word profitable. What does it mean for something to be profitable? The Greek word used in this passage means helpful or serviceable. Something that is profitable is advantageous. It means to heap up, accumulate, or benefit. In our American vocabulary, we would describe something as profitable if it is worth something of value. Something is profitable if it brings a return on our services or products. It gives us something more than we had, and we gain from something that is profitable. Since the theme is treasuring God's word, we are going to enter the mighty cavern of God's word that contains many jewels, but we are mining four specific profitable jewels. These jewels are advantageous to our spiritual well-being when we engage with God's word, and these jewels heap up eternal treasure in our hearts that moth and rust cannot destroy. Just like a miner goes searching for deep treasure within the caverns, so we will also open up God's word seeking to gain spiritual treasure. The caverns of God's word are endless in spiritual value and can be explored for a whole lifetime without acquiring all there is to gain from it. When a miner enters deep caverns hoping to find treasure, he is engaged in the difficult work of bringing the jewels out from the rock wall. So is the spiritual walk of all of us here. The Christian life is one of mining out the treasures of God's word together and then profiting when we have applied the spiritual treasure to our hearts by the power of the Holy Spirit. So what are the four jewels? The four jewels are teaching, reproof, correction, and training in righteousness. These jewels point to an even greater overall treasure that is the entire counsel of God's Word. These four individual jewels point us to the cavern where they can be found and show us riches that surpass all other riches for this specific message the cavern is the whole word of god and the jewels give us a greater understanding of the cavern so while these four jewels aren't the only jewels they do show us how the whole cavern is of spiritual benefit to us so what is the first treasure that we discover in 2 Timothy chapter 3 verses 15 through 16 We see that the first jewel is teaching. Teaching is the first great treasure that we discover. This specific word in the Greek means instruction. Instruction is something that tells us how to live, how to behave, what to believe, and how to engage with the world. Instruction is normally given by the hand of a teacher, someone who knows something more than we do. Someone who walks alongside us and reveals mysteries or truths that we did not yet know existed. When we were children, we would learn basic concepts such as language, math, history, and science. Without an instructor, teacher, or book to guide us, we would not be instructed in these areas. The same is true for the truth about God. A theological term that coincides with instruction is the word doctrine. Doctrine is a set of beliefs taught and held by the church. We see repeatedly throughout scripture that sound doctrine is important. Scripture reveals to us how to be saved, how to grow in holiness, and who God is. It teaches us about the history of Israel and shows us how the overarching meta-narrative points to Jesus Christ. Scripture teaches us that Jesus Christ lived the perfect life that you couldn't and wouldn't live. He died the death that we deserved. He was buried and he was raised from the dead after three days, ascending into heaven and is at the right hand of our Father as our constant mediator And we are waiting for his return. We are commanded to respond to this gospel message with faith and repentance. The Bible expresses that if we do not know Jesus Christ, then we cannot be saved. This is the most essential doctrine that can be mined from the great caverns of God's word. And all the other jewels point us not only back to the cavern, but also to Jesus Christ. The second jewel is reproof. (coughs) Reproof is best understood as revealing to us what is error and what is sin. The Bible teaches us what is wrong and instructs us not to do it. So just imagine for a second that you are on a boat and you see rocks up ahead. You see that the direction you are going is wrong, which would be reproof. But what do you do in that situation? Well, the third jewel is correction. Correction always follows reproof. To continue the analogy, you see the rocks up ahead, and so you correct course. You change the direction that you are going. Correction means to straighten up, to rectify. Error is something that needs to be corrected in us. Sin is broken, it defiles, it is wicked, and it leads us astray. The jewel of reproof is first used to show us our error and how we have gotten on the wrong track. Correction is redirecting us just like the boat is redirected away from the rocks. Correction teaches us what is right to do and how to execute it. And more importantly, the correct way to live is exhibited in the life of Jesus Christ. So again, reproof shows us what is broken by revealing how we have gone astray. And correction makes what is broken straight again by teaching us what is right. I hope this contrast has helped you to kind of understand the differences between reproof and correction. But just in case not all of us are understanding, I'm going to give an example um, from my own life and how reproof and correction are paired together to teach the Christian. So I am personally and actively struggling with the sin of bitterness and uh, spitefulness and plenty of awful sins towards another Christian ministry. Um, I thought that I had overcome my sin but had found myself continuing to keep score for the wrongs done. Um, So I continually encounter the second jewel of reproof, which shows me my error. I am in sin because I am choosing bitterness, spitefulness, hatred, and anger. And I know that these things are sin because God's word tells me that they are. The third jewel of correction has helped to show me how to correct my sinful behavior. God's word teaches me that love, unity, forgiveness, and pursuit of the gospel is right. So what do I do? What do we all do when we are in sin? First, we run to the gospel. I have to remind myself of what I have been taught in God's word, and that is the good news. Jesus died for me, saved me from myself, and has reconciled me to God. Jesus was perfectly obedient for me, and I am cleansed in him. Running to Christ gives me the assurance that my salvation is secure, and thanksgiving overflows in my heart to help me to correct my behavior and walk in obedience. My sins are many, all of our sins are many, but God's mercy is more. And second, once I've reminded myself of what Jesus has done in the gospel, I repent. I turn to Jesus and I ask for forgiveness and correction of my behavior. I cannot say that I have overcome this sin. Um, In fact, I wrote this only a week ago um, and it is a daily battle that we as Christians will never obtain perfection in this life, but we are striving to love and obey the commands of God. You can see how first I start with what scripture teaches me about the gospel. Then I see my error in the second jewel of reproof. And then with the help of the Holy Spirit, I begin to correct my behavior as the Spirit shows me in the scriptures how I am to live. God's word has helped me to be more aware of my actions and the words that I speak, and I am able to correct what is broken with the help of God. The fourth jewel is training in righteousness. Training is a call to continue to walk in Christ-likeness. Training is basically applying the first jewels over and over and over and over again. (laughs) Scripture first tells us how we are to be saved, and that is again through faith in the gospel, which is the life, death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. The gospel tells us of what Jesus has done on our behalf, and we believe in that. After we are saved, we are being sanctified or made holy. (laughs) Teaching, reproof, and correction all feed into our training. We are being shaped by God's word, And we are working out our salvation with fear and trembling. God's word is a powerful tool in the life of the believer and exercises our minds to be equipped to walk through these evil days. When a woman of God searches through the caverns of God's word and we leave with these valuable treasures, women, we, she, all of us, (laughs) begin to live by scripture. As she applies the spiritual wisdom gained from these jewels, she becomes complete and equipped for every good work. Scripture is used to make us mature and holy. It shows us the right way to go. It instructs us when we don't know what to do. It gives us instruction on how to live. And in the pages of scripture, we have everything that we need for life and godliness. Complete, which we saw in the text, means that we do not need to seek out extra special revelation or subjective experiences. All that is contained in the caverns of God's word is the only treasure that is profitable to make us wise and to salvation in Jesus Christ. God's word instructs us and gives us the practical how-to to live. It equips us for the practical application of our faith. It instructs us how to serve, give, and obey. God's word doesn't just tell us what to do, it also gives us the ability to do it. We are told that God's word is alive and active, sharper than a double-edged sword. And if you are a Christian, you also have the Holy Spirit indwelling in you. God's word and the Holy Spirit work in your life, equipping you to do good works. So we see how glorious these treasures are and how these treasures make us complete and equipped. So now we come to our last point. How do we pass on this treasure so that others may grow and come to know God? In verses 14 through 15, we see that the word was passed down to Timothy. But who passed down the scriptures to Timothy? Who taught him about the Messiah who saves? 2 Timothy 1.5 says, I am reminded of your sincere faith, a faith that dwelt first in your grandmother Lois and now your mother Eunice, and now I am sure dwells in you as well. We see that Timothy's grandmother and mother taught him the holy scriptures, and these scriptures made him wise unto salvation. Of course, the context of this verse, we know that it is the Old Testament scriptures that are being referenced. This was, again, before the New Testament letters had been compiled. We also know that Timothy had a Jewish mother, and so we know that the scriptures that are sacred were the 39 books of the Old Testament and not some other religious text. It is important to see that the Old Testament brings salvation through Jesus Christ. And this shows us that all of scripture is cohesive in leading up to the climax of the new covenant being established. There is only one way to be saved, and that is through faith in Jesus Christ, which means that Timothy was instructed by his mother and grandmother to believe in the Messiah and to recognize his coming. We know that God's word is treasure, and when we as believers store up in our hearts This treasure, we acquire a wealth that can be passed down. Commonly, wealth is passed down to children and grandchildren. This is called an inheritance. But this inheritance that we have been given as Christians is not just for our children or our grandchildren, but for the whole world. Acts 12. 2.39 2.39 tells us, For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. This message of redemption is to be spread to all people all throughout the world, in our homes, in our workplaces, in our friend groups, and globally. We are called to make God known and spread the wealth that we have mined from God's word. Everyone in this room has a different function and place in society. Some of us are mothers, wives, single women, widows, daughters, sisters, aunts, or grandmothers. We all have a wide variety of skills, jobs, and resources at our disposal. But we are all instructed to make disciples. Making disciples is passing on the gospel and God's word to the next generation. Very practically from the text that we just looked at, we see that mothers and grandmothers are to pass on the scriptures to their children and grandchildren. But not everyone is a mother or a grandmother, and we see that God also commands in other places in scripture that singles, those who do not have children, and even Christian children are to make disciples. We are all called to the same thing to proclaim the gospel, and to pass on this treasure. Last week, I actually received a very providential table talk in the mail. If you are not familiar with table talk, it is a reformed devotional that is made by Ligonier Ministries. This specific devotional was called From Generation to Generation. And in it was several different, very convicting articles about how there is a chasm between the generations. Um, We have a crisis in the church as a whole that the older generation is not passing on their wealth of biblical knowledge to the younger generation. And the younger generations are not seeking out the biblical wisdom of the older generation because of pride and thinking that we have it all figured out. While this may not be true for all churches, knowing that there is a chasm between the generation in many churches should stir in us to action and love for one another. We can all benefit from one another and should use our gifts for the edification of the church. When we allow for these types of divides to occur in our churches, no one is benefiting. We need to examine our own churches to determine if this is also affecting us personally. I've been thinking about this a lot in light of the passage and how I personally have had very little discipleship in my life. I was raised in a Christian home. My parents did pass on God's word to me, but in church, I was never brought under the wing of an older woman. I was never really mentored one-on-one, and no one ever took the time to sit me down and really explain the scriptures to me. I can only speak as one young woman, but I also met with another older woman recently who expressed that it is hard being older, it is far more isolating, and I can empathize that it must be difficult to be pushed away by the the younger generation. We are all guilty to some degree, and we can only fix this chasm by walking towards one another and not away. This is an encouragement to everyone in this room Older women, do not neglect the passing on of God's word to the younger women and children in our churches. And if you are younger, spend time with women who are not your age. Seek to learn from them and seek to serve them. I personally suffered a great deal from lack of discipleship, and I've always been in church. It is only by the grace of God that I have the capacity to be a teacher at such a young age. And I am only one woman, and this is only my experience, but I did not know or understand the depth of what was contained in the Bible when I was a child and a teenager. I went through high school and my early adult life floundering. Much of what I know I have acquired through the faithful preaching of God's word from the pulpit, reading the Bible, books, and the internet. None of these things are bad, but I've had very little discipleship with women one-on-one. And I have fallen into many pits along the way because I did not have a voice of Christian maturity walking alongside me and showing me in scripture what to believe and how I was to live. I would open my Bible and I would see the treasures of scripture, but no one would really come alongside me and explain how to apply that treasure to my life. I really struggled, and my Christian walk has been really hard because of lack of genuine discipleship in my life. Also because of my own pride, I have only reached out a handful of times to older women to walk alongside me. I was afraid of rejection, and I was afraid that older women would have nothing to offer me, which is very arrogant. So my experience may not be the same as yours, and we can praise God for the faithful men and women who have helped us along the way. I'm only sharing my experience so that we can reflect on the various ways we can reach out to the younger or newer believers who need help along the way. They need discipleship. Learning God's word can be very difficult, and God made our churches intergenerational for a reason. We all have so much to learn from one another, so if you are younger, seek out old, older women who can guide you in the faith. <laughs> well, I don't know what I just said, but seek out older women, <laughs> because you do not know everything, and you have much to learn. I have a ridiculous amount to learn, and In my own life, the past couple of years, God has blessed me with a healthy church and a couple of older women who have been very instrumental in some of my growth in becoming a mature Christian. Uh, If we are not, or if it were not for one very influential woman of God who took the time to explain very difficult concepts and doctrines, I would still be stuck in a lot of murky waters. I praise God that I had the courage to ask help, and I'm so thankful that I was not turned away. I'm also very thankful for FCF and how this body has also helped me to grow. The jewels shine brighter because I now have a healthy church who helps expose them from the rock wall. Discipleship is the pickaxe that we take to the wall together Hand in hand, we help one another and encourage one another to press on in this difficult work. We are not solo Christians wandering the caverns of God's word alone and trying to understand the jewels alone. The whole universal church stands with us in the cavern, and we help one another stand on shoulders and work together to bring out God's truth together. Anita is going to dive very deep into this topic tomorrow, but I just want you to remember that we have centuries of church history before us to help us understand scripture as well as our pastors and elders and other Christians in our churches. If you are struggling in this room to understand God's word, reach out and ask someone who is further along in their walk to pass it on to you. Passing on this treasure is so important because, and we need to be intentional about passing on God's word, not only in our local churches, but also our families, friends, and those whom we work with. We can do God's work and pass on this treasure in the ordinary. This includes passing on God's word to believers and unbelievers, If you are feeling distressed and worried that you are not passing on God's word enough or at all, my encouragement would be to look to Jesus. Rest in what he has accomplished for you and ask him for small opportunities in which you can speak truth in love. Please do not be hard on yourselves, but ask the Lord to help you love and follow his commands. And I want to encourage, I can't even talk, sorry. I want to encourage everyone here You do not need a master's in divinity, a well-crafted argument, or even great knowledge of all the doctrines of scripture to pass on God's word. People are not saved by the work that we put in. They are not saved because we know a lot about a certain topic. They are not saved because we are skilled in apologetics. They are not saved because we are nice or because we open up our homes. They are not saved by anything that we do, and you have to understand that, and it will make you bold, I promise. <laughs> they, are not, they are saved by the power of God alone. Scripture tells us in Romans that the gospel is the power of God unto salvation, to the Jew first and also for the Greek. So know the gospel and know it deeply. If you have not had a chance to read the whole Bible from Genesis to Revelation, do not condemn yourself or believe the lie that you cannot pass on this word. If you know the gospel, you can tell others, and that is what saves people. It doesn't matter if you are 10 years old or 90 years old. You can share the good news of Jesus Christ, and I would encourage you to do so as the word of God commands us to do so. Also allow teaching, reproof, correction, and training to work in your life through scripture. Remember that it makes us complete and equipped for every good work. Learn to love God's word and then pass it on. And if you are not a Christian and you are currently in this room, I would urge you to consider that God's word is a treasure. Please come to me, any of the speakers, or we could point you to other women in this room who know and believe the gospel, and ask us to show you in God's word how you can be saved. Ask us to pass on God's word to you, and Lord willing, you will be granted faith and repentance and also come to treasure God's word. Father, I just thank you that, um, again, we could all gather together. I just pray that this night is um, fruitful as we fellowship with one another, that we will uh, get out of our comfort zones and meet someone or talk to someone that we do not know well, uh, that we would have intentional conversations and ask hard questions that are meaningful so that we may encourage one another and build up the body in love and unity. I thank you for your gospel. I thank you for what you have done for us. I thank you that you have given us the greatest treasure in the whole world world, that is your word that tells us how to live and what you have done for us. There is no greater gift than the salvation of Jesus Christ, and I pray that we will all trust that that gospel message, is mighty to save, and that we will rest in what you did did for us, Lord, so that we can now walk in obedience. Thank you, Lord, for tonight. In Jesus' name, amen. Yeah, if you need to. Um, That's all. Thanks, Hannah. Yeah. Thank you. Very nice, very nice. I feel like I don't know.